place in your New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. It's where we're going to be for a little while today. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. This Corinthian church has a lot in common with us. Hopefully, there's a lot they do not have in common with us as well. Uh, what if they have in common is the fact that they were a young church, brand new, just like us. Maybe a little bit older than us by the time Paul wrote this letter, but nonetheless, they were probably what we would consider to be a church plant. But somehow or another, uh, they just fill their bucket with problems. You ever notice that? I mean, some folk just have a knack for attracting problems. And... Uh, the Corinthian church certainly had their share of serious problems. I mean, they were uh, suing one another in front of pagan judges. Uh, they were having problems with morality of the, of the worst kind. Uh, theological problems were rampant. And anyway, Paul is informed about all of this, so he writes a letter, and, and his uh, desire is to kind of straighten them out and get them back on the right track. So last week we looked at verses 4 through 9. Let's pick up today in verse number 10. Apostle Paul writing to that plagued church with tons of troubles down in Corinth. And this is what he said. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that they are, there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, or Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now let me just stop right there and say I love this about Paul because uh, you can see his humanity coming through here. He says, I, I baptized nobody except Crispus and Gaius. I guess he had a senior moment and he realized, oh wait, I did baptize somebody else. So that's what he feels a sin uh, on in verse number... 16. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Well, kind of a complicated and difficult text, and the way we have to make this thing come together for us is just by looking at the grammar and seeing if there are any clues in here that will help us pull this thing down so we can understand what Paul was saying to this Corinthian church. Because anytime we are reading one of the epistles in the New Testament, it's really like listening to one end of a phone conversation. Have you ever done that? Have you ever listened to somebody talk on this end to somebody that you couldn't hear what their response was or what their questions were, and you just had to kind of deduce or fill in the blanks by what you were hearing here as to what was going on there? And that's a lot of what we have to do when we're reading 1 Corinthians. So check this out. Notice what Paul does here. He gives us some clues because if you'll take your pen... You know, I mean, I hope you bring a pen to church because I always have you write and underline and mark. Notice how he, how he frames this. If you'll notice in verse number 10, 
He uses the word that three times. He says, that you all agree, underline that one, that there be no divisions among you, and then that you be made complete. Now, that's a strong clue for us, especially in the original language, to help us put this thing together in a way that we can comprehend what it is that Paul was saying. And then he uses another word three times in that verse as well. He uses the word same. Now the first time it's obscured in our English translations, but nonetheless it's very prevalent and very present in the original text. Notice what he says, that you all agree. Or basically, literally what he says there is that you all say the same thing. So our translators just bring it down into agree. But it's very important to see that this word same is used three times. Check out what he says. That you all say the same thing. And then in, at the end of that verse, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So these grammatical clues help us understand what it is that Paul was saying. So let's frame this entire thing under this title. How will we hold it together? And my question is, how will we as Grace Church hold it together without Grace Church coming apart at the seams the more age we get under our belt and the larger we grow? You know, that's a challenge for a lot of churches. That's why some churches are destined to remain at 30 in attendance and, 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 and not grow beyond it because they just can't hold it together beyond that. So it's a good question for us to consider at Grace. How will we not fall victim to some of the same things that the Corinthian church fell to as they were in this new church growth process? I think it's a very good question. Hey, I don't know about you guys, but I sure would like to hold grace together, wouldn't you? I mean, we've got a pretty good thing going on here. Uh, the Lord has started something remarkable at Grace Church, and that's why I'm here. And, and I believe that's why you are here. And the last thing I want to do is mess it up. The last thing you want to do is mess it up. So how will we hold grace together? Now you can answer that in a lot of ways like some of these uh, uh, factions were that Paul mentions for us here when some of them say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. They were all trying to hold it together but trying to hold it together in different ways. And that's not what we want to do. So let's answer that question as Paul frames this for us and we've already tried to unpack it grammatically. How will we hold it together? The first thing that Paul says here is that we can hold it together when we are quickly called into accountability. Now check this out. Look what he says in verse number 10. He says, now I exhort you. Does anybody have another word there for exhort in your Bible? What is it? I urge you. Somebody else have something else? Appeal, uh, that, 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 that's probably getting closer to the meaning. The, the word here in the original is, uh, the Greek word means to call alongside. So here's basically what Paul said. Paul said to them, hey, he blew the whistle. Said, time out. Y'all come alongside of me and let's talk. Because we got some problems going on here. And if we don't talk, they're just going to get worse. So literally what Paul did was Paul called them out. And you see, that's what all of us need in our life. We need somebody who has the authority and the credibility to call us out when we get a little bit out of line as this Corinthian church did. Now, notice he gives us two reasons or the basis for his being able to call them out. Look in verse number 10 again. 
Now I exhort you or I call you out. The next word, brethren. So how is it that we can have somebody call us out? How can we be somebody who in the name of Christ calls others out? And here it is. We can call one another out on the basis of our close brotherhood. You see, he called them out. And then he said, brothers. You know, there are some people that I don't have the authority to call them out when they're wrong. You know why? Because they're not my responsibility. I don't have a relationship with them. And if I call them out, it's probably not going to go well. They're just going to get mad. But hear me. For you and I, who are brothers in Christ, we should have enough credibility. We should have enough respect. We should have enough love between us that when we get close to the line, we have the authority and the credibility and the right to call one another out. Now maybe not publicly, but maybe say, Hey man, can we talk about something? See, that's how we hold it together on the basis of our close relationship. Now, this word brethren, it's not something that Paul uses lightly and you know what I'm talking about. Hey, in Christ, we ought to have a more intimate relationship with our brothers in Christ most of the time than we do with our biological brothers. Can anybody attest to that? I mean, there's just something about what God does for us in Christ when He puts us together as a family. We just know that we're close. And it's amazing to me, you know, we talked this morning about some short-term mission trips and here's some of the things that short-term mission uh, teams tell us when they're with us in Brazil. You know, even though we couldn't understand a thing they were saying, we sense that we are kin. We're family. We're brothers. We're all part of the same family. And that can't be explained except in Christ because that's what He does. So, hey, we have the right and should have the privilege of calling one another out because if not, we're not going to be able to hold it together. Now look what he says here. He says, brothers. He says, brothers. You know, man, it's amazing to me that this happens the way it does. Because Paul called these folk out on the basis of their kinship. He had a relationship with them. And there's sometimes you don't have a relationship with people. But nonetheless, he could speak to them because they were brothers. And he did it in love for their good and for the good of the church. And I think, my goodness, that's a model for us. Are you okay with somebody having, are you being accountable to somebody? I mean, are, are, are you okay with somebody having the authority to speak into your life when you're wrong? Because most folk are not. But you see, that's one of the things that's unique about the body of Christ. We've got to realize that we are not always right. My goodness, we've got to have somebody to walk with us or we're not going to hold this thing together. That's all there is to it. So he calls them out on the basis of their brotherhood. But notice what he does next. He says, I exhort you or I call you out brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls, them out, he calls us out on the basis of our close brotherhood, but also He calls us out on the basis of our common belief. You know what our common belief is? It's non-negotiable. You're right, Terry, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, would you listen to me? If there's a group of people who are, who, who are brothers in Christ and who have a common belief that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, why in God's name can't they work through any issue that's on the table? 
Huh? It amazes me. As a matter of fact, somebody explain to me how this happens. Do you know the deepest scars I have in my life personally? The greatest injuries that I have in my heart, you know where they came from? Yes, it's not who said it. They didn't come from the world. They didn't come from heathens. They didn't come from politicians. They came from so-called brothers. And you see, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's saying, listen, on the, name of our, on the basis of our close kinship and on the basis of our common belief, we should be able to work through anything in a civilized manner and hold it all together in the process. So he calls them out on the basis of our close brotherhood and on the basis of our common belief. And here's what he does. Here's, notice, here's, here's, how the, here's where those three that's come in. In order that. In order that what? Well, the, the first one is that you all agree. Remember I said the word same is repeated three times in this verse, just like the word that. So literally what Paul says is that you all say the same thing. You know, you, you know what? He, let me put it in common layman's terms. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that, that, that you are all talking about the same thing. So it, it makes me wonder, and here's the question that, that I want to put before you. How is it, and Paul's not talking about us being cookie-cutter, rubber-stamp believers where we're all just alike. Hey, you know God is in diversity, don't you? Huh? Just look around and, 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 and see the diversity within this family, within this brotherhood. And I'm telling you, that's something to celebrate. Because God is glorified when He brings diverse people together and puts them on the same path for His glory. So when Paul talks about here that you all ought to be saying the same thing, what is it that we are talking about? What is the collective message that Grace Church sends to the lost world outside? If they were to listen to us, what would they hear us saying? Would they hear us saying things that are consistent with one another? Or would they hear us saying things that are contradictory with one another? So that we all say the same thing. Man, I wish we had a grace group this week because we'd flesh this thing out. What is it that you say about Grace Church? What is it that you are hearing about Grace Church? Are we all saying the same thing? So Paul calls them out and he says, on the basis of your close brotherhood and on the basis of our common belief, I want y'all all to say the same thing. One person can't be saying this and the other one saying something diametrically opposed. Now check out what else he says as we look at that other that in verse number 10. That you all agree and that there be no divisions. Underline that word divisions among you. So he tells them to do this. He tells them to say the same thing and then he tells them that they ought to be seeking the same thing. To seek the same thing. Because here's what this word, here's how this word's translated in other places. This word divisions. Sometimes that word is is used for a piece of wood or a splinter. So you can see how division is a splinter group. But it's also used like this. It means a wedge. So have you ever had somebody try to drive a wedge between you and somebody else? Here, here, here's how it goes. If I were trying to cause harm to the relationship of Katie and Colin, here's what I would do. I'd put a wedge right here between them. And that's what Paul is talking about. And when you're putting a wedge in front of somebody, putting a stumbling block, purposefully trying to promote your agenda rather than theirs and make theirs fail, you see that's not seeking the same thing. And that's what Paul says we ought to be doing. 
that we ought to all be seeking the same thing and not trying to trip one another up and not trying to put wedges in between relationships but trying to unify them, bring them together rather than separating them. So check out what else he says. He says that you say the same thing, that you seek the same thing and finally he says that you be sown together. I had to get my English student, Jornandis, to tell me if this was the correct tense of this verb. You know, because we have a verb for sow, sowing seeds, and sowing, and sowing clothes together. So this is the correct tense of it. Sown, S-E-W-N, to be sown together. Now check out this word right here that Paul uses uh, in, verse, uh, in the last part of that. Here's the last that in verse 10. That you be made complete. Notice number one that you be made complete is a passive verb. Passive. What's that mean? That means somebody else does it to you. You can't do it for yourself. You can't be made complete by yourself. Number one, because you don't have the capacity to save yourself. If you're going to be made complete, it requires Jesus Christ, does it not? But in this context, it requires someone else. And who is that? It's the church of Jesus Christ. That you be made complete. I'm telling you, one of the greatest heresies today is that I can be saved and have nothing to do with the church. I don't have to go. It's not necessary. Friend, I want to tell you, you can't be made complete by yourself. You can't make yourself complete. You're always going to be broken. There are always going to be holes in your life. You can't do it if you're isolated from community and that community is the church of Jesus Christ. Now check it out a little bit farther. So we see this, a passive verb, meaning that you can't do it to yourself. Somebody else has to do it for you and with you. But notice the word here uh, that he uses, be made complete. You may want to underline that because it's the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 4 and I believe it's about verse number 21. At the call of the disciples, Jesus found some of them in the boats and guess what they were doing to their nets? Mending. Very good, uh, Ben Wilson. They were mending their nets. So when you mend your nets, what do you do? Here's where, I'm, where I get this to be sewn together. They take a, a needle and they take line and they fix or patch and sew together the holes. So you know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying a church that does not say the same thing, does not seek the same thing, a church that is not being made complete is a church that has holes in it. And do you know what a net with holes in it will catch? Huh? N nothing. Yeah, maybe some water. I, I can remember years ago, uh, as a little boy, we lived on the coast of Mississippi, and man, we love mullet. I don't know if y'all eat mullet around here or not, but mullet's called Biloxi bacon because we love mullet. Uh, but anyway, we'd go out with a cast net. Heather and I, on dates, we used to go out and I would throw a net and she'd tote the croaker sack and we'd fill a croaker sack up with mullet. You remember those days, Heather? Good days, I'm telling you, good days. But anyway, <laughs> look, if you got a woman that'll go wade out in the gulf with you at night up to here and tote a croaker sack, you know she's marriage material, huh? And, and that's, what, that's what Heather did. I remember we were home one night and one of our neighbors came up and he had a, he had a pillowcase, a, uh, a dang uh, cotton pillowcase and in it, man, it, you could tell it was bulging with fish and he got out and wanted to know if my daddy wanted some fish. He said, 
uh, Pete, I've been, I've been uh, mulleted tonight, and I got a good many. Want to stop by and give you some? Well, Daddy didn't like them old big Popeye mullet. You know what I'm saying? We like them about like this in fillet size. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and we opened that sack, and they were all that big. I mean, those mullet were that big around and that big. And Daddy said, Leslie, don't you have any smaller? He said, man, I'm sorry I don't. He said, you know, the funny thing is I got a hole in my net about that big. So anything smaller than that got out. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. A hole, a net that, have, that has holes in it won't catch anything, but most time it'll catch what you don't want. More problems. So how are we going to grow as a church? And how are we going to hold it together? I can tell you how when we start mending some holes and start being sewn together. Because here's what I know. I know what folk are looking for today. They were looking for the same thing when I came in here. I was looking for community. I was looking for somebody who understood me. I was looking for somebody who could speak into my life. I was looking for a place where I could be who God's made me to be, how He's gifted me, where, where I could be used. And that's what folk are looking for. Hey, folk are not looking. Everybody thinks people are looking for a friendly church. They're not. What are they looking for, Dr. John? They're looking for a church friend. That's exactly right. So how do, we, how do we hold it together? How do we sew ourselves together? Well, it starts the very first time somebody walks in these doors. Dr. John says when somebody comes in this church, if they're sitting by themselves, that is a spiritual emergency. And it is. You see, because we start the sewing process the very first time somebody enters these doors. And by the way, uh, church growth experts tell us that folk have done made up their mind whether they're coming back a second time before 10 minutes of their arrival, before 10 minutes has expired after they got here. So we start that mending process, that sewing one another together. I got to run. Notice, how will we hold it together? Well, we hold it together when we say the same thing, seek the same thing, and are sewn together. And look, Paul tells us how, and, and man, what a, what, what a jam-packed sentence he gives us. That you be made complete in the same mind. Here's the second occurrence of the word same. In the same mind. And again, he's not talking about that we all are robots, we're all cookie cutters, we all have the same perspective and, and all of that type of stuff. It's not what he's saying. He's simply saying here the word mind is, is clue, is key. I think what he's referring to is what you get when you're born again. Do you know what you get when you're born again? The Bible tells us you receive the mind of Christ. That means you get a different perspective on things. That means you look at things differently. And notice what else he says. Not only does he say by having the mind of Christ are you sown together, but he also says that by arriving at the same conclusion. Check it out. That you, uh, verse number 10, that you be made complete in the same mind and same judgment. That word is conclusion or evaluation. And here's how you do that. How do you arrive at the same conclusion? By having the same mind. By having the mind of Christ. Because you know what the mind of Christ gives you the ability to do? It gives you the ability to think biblically and spiritually. That means one spiritually plus one spiritually equals two spiritually. And that means we just have the ability to track God out to see what God is doing and put one and one together to make two and arrive at the same conclusion. Man, isn't it cool to see what God's doing sometimes to be able to put it together? You know, we've been, we've been talking about missions in Bible study for the past two or three weeks. 
And it sure is cool to see. I mean, look, you can have the spiritual IQ of a cricket mole and see what God's doing in missions. I mean, you know, we talk about sending and we talk about giving and we talk about going. And this morning, Jordanandes, being here with us, just underscores the conclusion that it is God's intention for His people to be missional believers and a church to be a sending church involved in getting the gospel to those who don't have access to it. It's spiritual one plus spiritual two equals spiritual three. And you arrive at those conclusions by having the mind of Christ and being able to put spiritual one and spiritual two together. I've got to run. As you can tell, I'm talking fast. How, do we, how will we hold it together? Number one, when we're called into accountability. Number two, when we're concerned enough to seek help. Concerned enough to seek help. Notice what Paul says in verse number 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Hey, is the church of the living God a high enough priority in your life to want to help when things need helping. To want to get involved in somebody's life when things get messy. And to be able to help sew them back together and mend things. And that's what Paul says. You know, most folk, I'm convinced when it comes to church, they're completely passive. Just passive. They just say, not my problem. But it is your problem. You'll never be made complete in a church that has holes in it. Your spirituality will never supersede the spirituality of the body. So for our own good, we've got to be involved. We've got to be active. We've got to come alongside one another. We've got to help sew one another together. And we've got to be willing to hold one another accountable. That's all there is to it. So Paul says, how will we hold it together? Well, when we get rid of this passive attitude, says it, not my problem. Hey, I just show up there once a week on Sunday morning. No, no. You're a part of this family. Check it out. Number three. How will we hold it together when folk are active and concerned enough to seek help? But look at number three. When we're courageous enough to be identified. And I love this. I love this. You know why I love it? Because I've been shot at most of my life by people who refuse to come out into the light and identify themselves. Been shot at unjustly, by the way. Not called out. It takes somebody who's willing to be courageous to call you out and identify themselves. Check out what Paul says. He says, I've been informed concerning you, my brother, by who? My Chloe's people. So Paul was not one of those Baptists that would come to the pastor and say this. Well, brother, there are some of us who think... Wait a minute, who are some of you? Well, they've asked me not to identify themselves. Then shut up, I don't listen to cowards. Huh? Here's what one of my seminary professors taught taught us in seminary. He said, gentlemen, take my word for it. If you get a letter that comes to your desk and it doesn't have a first class stamp sealed envelope with a return address on it, do not open it up. And I thought, that old man's crazy. And I became a pastor. And I got mail. And I began to open letters that didn't have a return address on them. And son, listen, it wounded my soul what people were saying to me in letters 
and they were too dang coward to even sign their name to it. So one day, you know what I did? The last letter that I opened and I said, that old man in seminary was right. By golly, I ain't know And I told my secretary, if mail comes for me and it doesn't have a return address on it with a name, throw it in the circular file because I am not going to be beat up by some coward who won't even put his name, sign his name to his letter. So I had, I had one of those, one of those men just rake me over the cold letters. So here's what I did. I went to the pulpit next Sunday morning. I took that letter and read it. I said, whoever wrote this, you forgot to sign it. Would you raise your hand, please? <laughs> you know how I knew wrote it? No, because the old boy's wanting to get under the pew. He's wanting to hide. It's what cowards do. Hey, listen, we are people of the light. We are. We don't do things anonymously. You know, we have, we have so much stuff in our Baptist way of life that's not biblical like this. When we have a church meeting, one of the reasons why we don't have business meetings because all we're doing is setting one another up for division and fights and factions. We're not going to vote on stuff. We've got some spiritual men here who take care of stuff. I'm so grateful to God to have men like Cliff Myers and Dane Caldwell and John Wilson that are spiritually minded men who come to the same conclusions. I've never been in an elders meeting where we disagreed. We can put one and one together and come to the same conclusion. There's no need in bothering you with that. That's not what you're here to do. You're not here to make decisions. You're here to be sown together and to be edified and grown up so you become a great commissioned Christian who affects the uttermost parts of this world. Huh? So we don't want to put that junk on you. And man, I'm so grateful to God to know that I'm part of a church that has men that can do that. Huh? Really? So we don't want to come here and say now, we don't want anybody to know what you think. So we, we've passed out some secret ballots. You don't even have to sign your name on them. Just check this box, yes or no. What are church leaders thinking of? Hey, I don't think you ought to be able to vote unless you're willing to say, stand up and say, I voted no. And here's why. Because we are people of the light. And here Paul identifies. He don't say, well, somebody told me. You know, I actually had somebody come to me one time in church and say, say this. Say, Pastor, I really heard something the other day that's alarming. And I want to tell you, but I can't. And I said, what do you mean you can't? He said, because the person that, I, that told it to me made me promise that I wouldn't say it or tell them who said it. I said, well, what are we even talking about then, you idiot? Don't come to me and tell me you really want to say, tell me something, but can't tell me what it is or who told it to you. Well, where'd you get that from? I mean, that's I, I, no more biblical than anything I've ever heard. But that's the kind of stuff that we think we can get away with. Huh? Somebody said, here's what I told him. I said, let me tell you something, brother. I said, a promise that is wrongly made is equally wrong to keep. Huh? How about if, 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 if I knew something about you, how about, how about if I walked by your car today on the way to my car and I saw the steel cord sticking out on the side of your firestone, but I didn't tell you. And you went up down the road and that thing blew out and flipped over and killed you. Who's responsible? Yeah, you better believe it. And you see, that's the way it is with church. I, I can't promise somebody that I won't do something if it's detrimental to you or detrimental to me. As a matter of fact, Look at this. 
It's against the law for me to make that promise. I must reveal it if you are in imminent danger. Here Paul gives us a good example. He says, ain't none of this secret ballot stuff. Ain't none of this, please promise not to tell I said it. No, no, no. We're courageous and we're people of the light. Now check this out because this is where I want to spend my time today and we're done. Uh, How will we hold it together? Well, we'll hold it together when we're quickly called into accountability, when we're concerned enough to seek help, when we're courageous enough to be identified, and finally, here's the heart of this text, when contemporary contentions drown in preaching the gospel. Because that's what Paul says. Check this out. I want you to see this. All of these groups or these factions here, it really wasn't theological disagreement. It was personal agendas. And the the word contentions here that, that Paul uses or quarrels is also found listed in the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 along with jealousy and envy and divisions and contentions and and all of those things that we want to avoid. It's the same word. But notice what else that, 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 that Paul does here. He talks about all of these parties in the church. There was the I am of Paul crowd, the I am of Apollos crowd, the I of Cephas crowd, and the I of Christ crowd. And all of them really were personal agendas that folk brought to the church and they attached them to a certain leader. So let's look at these a little bit more deeply in their historical context and see what they are. You tell me if you recognize them. Hey, here's the good news. You don't recognize them at Grace Church, but you probably recognize them at a church you've been affiliated with. Huh? You just just mark my word. The reason I say we don't have this kind of stuff is because we're not old enough yet to have these types of divisions and, and cliques and crowds and personal agendas. Thank the good God of heaven at Grace Church. we got to hold it together so this doesn't happen. Alright? Notice, these contemporary agendas. How do you keep them from happening? Well, Paul talks in verses 12 through 17 about baptism. Something must have been going on around baptism that we're only hearing this end of the conversation, but mark my word, there was something going on about it. And can I just point out as a side note that there is a heresy going around today that says in order to be saved, you must be baptized. Ever heard that? Huh? If you're not baptized, you're not saved because water baptism is necessary for salvation. Here's one of the greatest rebuttals in all the Bible of it. Because notice what Paul said. Here's the apostle. Here, the apostle Paul said it. Look what he says in verse number 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Son, do you think if, if baptism was necessary for salvation, the apostle Paul would have said that? I guarantee you, Paul would have been baptizing every, every person he came in contact with, huh? Because that's what he was about about seeing folks saved, planting churches. So Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. But look what he said. But to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. Not in cleverness so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Can I say this? Paul tells us here how it is that you keep divisions and factions from blossoming and growing and producing bitter fruit in a local church. And how is it? By... The constant preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if the gospel's not preached, let me tell you what. Personal agendas are going to blossom everywhere. But the gospel keeps that stuff beat down. The preaching of God's word keeps it beat down. 
Now let's look at each one of these and you tell me if you recognize them. Look what some of them were saying. The first group is, they're saying, I am of Paul. Now here's the heart of this crowd. You know, Paul was the founding pastor, was he not? He was the missionary. So this is what I call the nostalgic crowd. They were always looking back, always looking back to when Paul came and when old brother Paul was here. Now you tell me if you haven't recognized this in some churches. Some churches are composed almost completely of this nostalgic crowd because they're always looking backward. They're always looking back to the good old days when old brother so-and-so was here. And it's all about history. And it's all about wanting to go back to those good old days. When I did some work as a church consultant in northeast Florida, here's one of the things we'd always ask to individuals when we were interviewing folk. Tell me, when were the best days of your church? And you know what this nostalgic people would say? They'd always go back in their mind 20 years, 30 years, sometimes all the way back to the 1970s and 60s and talk about when old brother so-and-so was here, how it was, how we had a full house, how everybody got along, how all this stuff happened, and all they want to do in their heart is go back to the 1970s. And son, you can tell it because they still got shag carpet on the floor. Huh? Got them old red pews in there since 1972. All of the windows in the church have somebody's name under it. Given in honor or in memory of somebody. Do, do you know that church? Huh? I mean, I, I pastored that church, I think, one time. Huh? Everybody always wanted to go back. But here's the thing. When you ask somebody, tell me when the best days of your church was, if they say it's backwards, you can best believe that's the nostalgic agenda. Wanting to go back to how it was. Have you ever noticed that you can't go backwards? There's a problem when people only have a rearview mirror that they're looking in and wanting to go back. And that's what this Paul crowd was wanting to do. They were wanting to go back. So if I were to ask you, when are the best days of Grace Church? What would you say? You'd say what? you say right now. Or when? In front of us. Exactly. Listen here. If our best days are behind us, then take that sign and just put out of business on it. Amen. Huh? Because we don't have anything to look forward to. But I'm telling you what God started here. He intends it to get better and better and better. And all we got to do is hold it together and let Him be Him and His preferred reality will be ours. Check it out. Notice number next. That's the Paul crowd. They're in the nostalgic crowd. But there's also the Apollos crowd. Now, this is the crowd that I call the intellectual crowd. The intellectual crowd. Because you know who Apollos was. Man, Apollos, we, we run into him in Acts chapter 18. And the Bible says that Apollos was a smart cookie. He studied at the University of Alexandria. The most influential university in the ancient world was in Alexandria, Egypt. He was trained in the finest rhetoric and logic. And the Bible says when he preached, he preached with eloquence and people were just spellbound when old Apollos stood up to preach. Because he was a smart dude. And you know, I see that crowd today. I see that movement among believers. You know, there's a movement afoot today to make the gospel all about the mind. To make it completely academic. To make it completely intellectual. And those people, when they stand up to preach, son, they're polished. They never move from behind the pulpit. 
they speak with a certain tone and you understand about 10% of what they say because their vocabulary is way up here. goes over everybody's head. They preach about things that make no difference in your life that you'll never encounter Monday through Saturday. It's all intellectual. And as a matter of fact, this crowd is so convinced that it ought to be intellectual until they remove any vestiges of emotion because emotion to them is the enemy. And here's my problem with that approach. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, the seed of emotion, where your passion is, with all of your mind. Would you listen to me? I'm not against being smart. I want you to be intellectual. I want you to be a part of the Mensa Society spiritually. Huh? I have nothing against academia. I mean, dear God, I spent most of my life in that world. have nothing against it. But let me tell you what I have something against. I have something against making the gospel of Jesus Christ completely intellectual. I can't do that. Man, the Word of God so fills me and so motivates me. And a lot of folk don't like to sit under my preaching because I can't help it. I just get involved, you know. I mean, preaching to me is a full contact sport. Look here, you don't want to listen to a preacher who is not excited and has not been thrilled over the things that he's seen in Scripture this week. Son, if it doesn't burn passionately in my heart, it's not going to burn in your heart. And if it doesn't connect with your heart, it's going to do no good in your world. It's not. So y'all don't have anything, anything against intellectualism. But by God, somebody better bring some fire. Somebody better bring some passion. Somebody better bring some excitement. No wonder most folk go to church and sleep for an hour and catch up on the rest, huh? I mean, look, I could bore you to death if I wanted to with intellectualism. But that's not what it's about. It's about letting the gospel fuel our passion. And when you hear the gospel preached in such a way, if it don't make you want to love Jesus a little bit more, then it miss the mark. How do you love Him, son? You love Him when God's Word connects with the heart, the seat of your emotion, and you express it in worship to Him. So that was the intellectual crowd. Anybody know folk like that? We've seen the nostalgic crowd. We've seen the intellectual crowd. But notice this other group said, I am of Peter or Cephas. Now you know who Peter was. He was the apostle to the Jews. Peter struggled with this all of his life. We know it. We see it in Acts. This was the legalistic crowd. The legalistic crowd. Have you ever known a church like this? I mean, my gosh, there's so many rules. They just have a, a, a tendency of making rules. And watch this. If you don't follow the rules, what? This is a church that loves. Some they have a hair trigger on church discipline. You do something that gets close to one of their rules, they're so legalistic until they're going to come down on you with heaping coals of church discipline and you are out of the shrine, Coy. <laughs> y'all remember that old Ray Stevens song? I don't think y'all do. Nobody laugh at Dane. Me and him, the only one old enough in here to remember that. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Here's why that's appealing. Some of us are just rule followers. Did you know that? I mean, by nature, I'm a rule follower. If there's a rule, by golly, I'm going to follow it. I mean, Heather got on to me this week because we went up to Lowe's. It's my second home these, lately. We went up to Lowe's to have our weekly fight over what color of something we were going <laughs> to we put in the house. 
She wants me to park right here, but I ain't parking there because that sign says something for somebody and it's not me. And yeah, I'm the only car in the parking lot, but by golly, if I park there, the guy who's supposed to be there is going to come in right after me and he's going to be mad because I'm in his parking spot. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a rule follower. I can't help it by nature. I want to follow the rules. But hear me. That's something that Paul refused to reduce Christianity to is following rules. He said, we don't live by rules, we walk by the Spirit. And that requires a personal relationship with Jesus Christ manifested through the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And we're to be so in tune with Him that we're not ahead of Him, we're not behind Him, we're walking step by step beside Him. But you see, folk who are predisposed to live by rules, man, this legalism appeals to them. Appeals to them. So this was the legalistic crowd. So now we got the nostalgic crowd wanting to go backwards. We got the intellectual crowd wanting to preach over everybody's head so nobody understands anything and takes all the emotion and heart out of Christianity. And then we had the legalistic crowd down at Corinth and they were wanting to have so many rules that nobody could live up to them and everybody was outside the boundaries. Then we had one more, rule, one more group. Look at what they say. Here's what they say and I'm done. <laughs> this group says... I am of Christ, or I of Christ. You know who this was? This is what I call the super spiritual crowd. And here's what the super spiritual crowd said. They said, why are y'all even worried about these human leaders? I don't even have a human leader. I don't need a human leader because Christ is my shepherd. You ever heard anybody say that? That's what this super spiritual crowd says. So hence they are the ones who see no reason for the local church because they will never be in submission to anybody's authority. Do you know we've had that super spiritual crowd right here? We have. But you know where they are today? They're gone. You know why? Because they're too spiritual for us. They'll never want to listen to somebody preach God's word to them in an authoritative way. So they say, I don't need this, and, and they pop out. They, they, y'all remember that song? Y'all remember that old song from years ago? I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt. Y'all remember that? Y'all must. <laughs> well, uh, no. <laughs> well, here's what the super spiritual crowd says. They say, I'm too spiritual for the church, too spiritual for the church. And they're gone. And that's what this crowd did. Because Paul wrote this letter in about AD 64. There was a man named Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome. Now, I don't know why Clement of Rome. I guess there was multiple Clements and they wanted to make sure they identified the right one. So, you know, like Colin of Thomasville. I think that'll be his name now. Colin of Thomasville. So anyway, Clement of Rome wrote another letter to the Corinthian church in A.D. 95. He mentions three of these groups. You know which one he doesn't mention? He doesn't mention the Christ crowd. You know why? Because they already left. Because they don't need this. They're not going to submit to a human leader. They don't even need one because Christ... And here's what those, these folk are always saying. They're always pulling this card out of, out of their pocket. Well, God told me to tell you. You ever anybody tell you that? Oh, so wait a minute. So you got a direct line to God and He speaks to you about me? Why wouldn't He just speak to me through His Holy Spirit out of His Word? Huh? But that's what this super spiritual crowd said. They're really a bunch of mystics. They don't rely on God's Word. They don't have anything to do with the church. It's just all about a mystical experience and what God's saying to me. Well, how's God saying that to you? What is He speaking? What language is He speaking in? What, is, what does His accent sound like? Tell me. Does He sound like Charlton Heston? I mean, I don't know. 
Never had that audible voice speak to me. What does he sound like? But that's the spiritual crowd. Hey, we've had them here. You know what I had one of them say to me one time? Had them say to me, I will never submit to a human pastor. That's the super spiritual crowd. Guess where they are today? God only knows where. That's right, they're just drifting around. That's the super spiritual crowd. Now notice, how does Paul say you avoid all this? How do we hold it together? Hey, here's the good news, church. Here's the good news. I don't see any one of these here today. They're not here. If you're a member of one of these clubs, it's a secret society because I don't even know about it. Huh? And guess what? Nobody's even told me about it. Usually somebody comes and say, Pastor, I, I don't want you to use my name or say anything about it, but uh, do you know this? <laughs> I've not even had that happen. That tells me this doesn't happen at Grace Church. Thanks be unto God. huh? But we got to hold it together. And Paul tells us how to hold it together. And Paul says, let me tell you. He says, that stuff can only be preached down. I had an old wise pastor tell me one time when I was talking to him about some issues, he said, Pastor Richie, that stuff can only be defeated through the power of the preaching of the gospel. You know, I've got to preach the gospel to myself. You know why? Because there are things in my life that crop their head up that the only thing that's effective is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I get out from under that, I can be just as mean and nasty as any of these members of these cliques right here in 1 Corinthians. Thanks be unto God, we don't have it. Hey church, let's hold it together. Our future, future is far too good to sacrifice it for a personal agenda. Let's sew each other together and walk into God's future expecting Him to do glorious things. Amen? Amen. Stand with me please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you God that you speak to us when we don't even think we need it. You give us sometimes 